This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Anthropology and Soteriology and Augustine. Intro. What do I do with my notes? Ah. When we come to Augustine in particular on these questions, we need to appreciate a couple of things. Augustine represents on a whole range of issues, not just soteriology and anthropology, but he represents the the highest theological achievement of the early church. He's the capstone of the theology of the early church. Okay? But also, when you talk about Augustine, you have to also realize that he is the foundation for medieval thought. The very foundation. In fact, you cannot understand the Middle Ages without understanding Augustine. Every, virtually every single medieval theologian described himself as an Augustinian. Because Augustine was the, the definition of orthodoxy. And if you were to say, I am not an Augustinian, that's like saying, I'm a heretic. So every theologian self-consciously identified himself with Augustine. And his theology is, in fact, the foundation of medieval theology. And so as we turn our attention to Augustine, this really marks a crucial uh, transition period because we're moving from the early church to the medieval period. Uh, Augustine is, is, the, is the real foundation of the Middle Ages. So bear that in mind. We're sort of, he's the end of the early church and the beginning of the Middle Ages and on these very crucial questions. Now, I like the quote of Alfred North Whitehead. He once said of Plato that Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. I would adjust that slightly and say that the theology of the Western church, Western world, has been a series of footnotes to Augustine. That's how important he is. In the medieval period, Anselm, was very much indebted to Augustine. Furthermore, Aquinas was very much indebted to Augustine. Those of you who did the paper on uh, Augustine and Aquinas on predestination, I, I suspect that you found that there was a much closer correlation than you thought before. And there's a good reason for that. It's because Aquinas was an Augustinian. 
Most Protestants don't know that. And of course, the Protestant Reformation itself, if you look at Luther, you look at Calvin, on every page of almost every writing, they'll have four or five citations from Augustine. I mean, the Reformation, in large part, sees itself as a recovery of the teachings of Augustine. Augustine's world. His world was in upheaval. The Roman Empire was on its last legs. And Augustine lived in a period when society was in a state of disintegration. He lived in that period that Gibbon called the decline of the Roman Empire. So he lived in a time of great political upheaval, social upheaval. He also lived in a time when that fundamental transition is taking place in the West, the transition from paganism to Christianity. He lived as that transition took place. Forty years before Augustine's birth, in 312 A.D., Constantine was converted. And, of course, that set the Western world on a Christian course, more or less. So, we see that Augustine developed his anthropology and his soteriology in a period of great upheaval. In fact, you can see that upheaval, that turbulence in Augustine's own life. So, two, the life of Augustine. Although you've read the Confessions and you have a good basic idea, I want to take at least a little bit of time to cover some of those main uh, episodes in Augustine's life. Because in many ways, to know Augustine's life is to get some insight into his theological development. Augustine was born on 13 November 354. 13 November 354. And he died the 28th of August, 430. So he is a transition figure from uh, between the 4th and 5th centuries. And his 75 years, his life is centered around six key locations. Tagasta in uh, North Africa. Madaura in North Africa. I'll go through all these again. Carthage, Rome, Milan, and Hippo. Well, I was just going to say that uh, Niebuhr, Bart, and Tillich all appropriate Augustine for their own purposes. Thank you for mentioning that. Bart, Tillich, and Niebuhr also appropriate Augustine. Okay. In the Confessions of Augustine, one finds a chronicle not only of dates and events, but you find a chronicle of a person's internal struggle and the changes that occur in his inner life, which makes them so terribly exciting for us. Uh, it's not just an autobiography, 
but it's an interpretation of his life. And in fact, Augustine sort of sees himself as the prodigal son. These images, these biblical images, what he does is he goes back on his own life in the confessions and he, and he sort of plays with it. He casts, he orchestrates his own life in terms of biblical themes, uh, biblical events. I'll talk about this in a few minutes, but just, just to illustrate this further. You know the story of his conversion. Where does his conversion take place? In a garden near a tree. Now, there is, I think, very serious significance in the way he characterizes and orchestrates his life, his conversion in particular. There is this association with the Garden of Eden. And he does this over and over again in the confessions to, to cast his life in terms of biblical uh, events. It's this confessions, I, I think you can tell from my enthusiasm, I think it's one of the greatest books anyone can read. It's also, and we said this, I think, earlier, that the confessions is, is, is a long prayer. What, he's really talking to God. And it's, it's this dialogue between Augustine, the older Augustine, and God looking back on his life. And he's, it, it, the intimacy of it is wonderful to talk about those internal struggles. I, I think that's useful. There's this sense in which Augustine, talking about his own life in the Confessions, talking about his own personal experience, believed that there was something universal about his experiences. And the fact that he recast them in view of biblical events suggests that he had this intention of having a an autobiography that touched all of us. I think there's real intent on his part for us when we read it to see ourselves, to see our own struggles. I think his doctrine of original sin, he knew about you and knew about me because he knew about himself. One of the great quotes that I just, I just love comes from Francisco Petrarch, who is considered the father of the Italian Renaissance, written some 800 years after Augustine. He had just read the Confessions, Petrarch had, and he said this. He said, I account myself to be, re to be reading the narrative not of another man's pilgrimage but of my own. And I think when I look at the confessions of, of Augustine and his life, I, I, I really resonate with, with Petrarch. Okay. Two is supposed to say life of Augustine. And A is Tagaste. This is the small town in North Africa where Augustine was born, about 50 miles south of the Mediterranean Sea. His mother, Monica, was a devout Christian. His father, Patricus, P-A-T-R-I-C-U-S, was a pagan who worked for the Roman government, although 
toward the end of his life, he was, in fact, converted. Now, a little known fact, but when Augustine was educated originally, uh, early on, it seems he hated school. But then he became a brilliant student later on, obviously. So there's hope. There's hope for you. <laughs> yes, go, Joe. The beatings. Well, that's always a good reason for, for hating school, isn't it? Anyway. At age 12, he was sent off to school in Madura, a, uh, a city known for its pagan culture. And young Augustine seems to have become rather acquainted, well acquainted with the seamier side of life at a fairly young age. And at 16, because his parents seemed to run short of cash, he had to come home and spend an enforced sabbatical back home in Tagasta. And that was a year in which he described he spent his time in, quote, enforced idleness in his hometown. And he describes his friends that year. He says, Behold, with what companions I walked the streets of Babylon, in whose filth I was rolled, as if in cinnamon and precious oils. And the one episode that particularly stands out in his life, in this year of enforced idleness, is the pear tree episode. And the story is very simple. He and some friends were out cruising. And uh, there wasn't much to do. So they decided to go and steal some pears from their neighbor's yard. They stole the pears. They didn't taste very good. They weren't particularly uh, tasteful, so they, they threw them away to the pigs. And looking back on this, the old Augustine asks himself the question, why did I do it? Why did I steal? He said, did I do it because it tasted good? He answers, no, I didn't. Did he do it because he enjoyed the comradeship with his buddies? Well, yes, he did a little bit, but that wasn't the real reason. He said the real reason was because he loved evil. Now, I don't, I don't know how you respond to that, but when I, when I read that, I see either a really crusty old person who's, who's sort of just has a negative attitude about everything and making the, you know, a childhood prank as if it were some sort of monumental I mean, problem. Was, he, was, was, was Augustine making a mountain out of a molehill? I think not. I think what you have here is a man who is looking behind the, ex, the, the obvious event. Augustine is somebody who understood original sin and the kind of corruption that it worked in the heart of a young 16-year-old. 
Listen to what he says about this. I, this touches me every time I read it. He says, I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of stealing and the doing of what was wrong. I became evil for no reason. I had no motive for my wickedness except the wickedness itself. I was foul and I loved it. I loved the self-destruction. I loved my fall. Not the object for which I had fallen, but the fall itself. I was seeking not to gain anything by shameful means, but shame for its own sake. I think that in a really profound way describes the wretchedness of sin in our own lives. I don't think that most of us, and I include myself, understand sin and what a wretched, ugly, terrible, terrible thing it is and what moves us to do things. When Augustine says, I loved that really gets behind the external kinds of good things and bad things that we do. What's really at stake, and, and Augustine just penetrates right to the core, is that I loved wickedness. I, I don't think I've ever read anything that struck me so hard as the time, the first time I read these kinds of passages, because it describes me to a T. And I think I, 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 I began <laughs> to have a little better understanding of what sin really is and how, how, how it works its wicked way in us. Um, I, ju I just think that is one of the most profound passages in literature. It's, oh, I, I think so. I really do. I, I think you find again the, 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 what the very talented... Uh, older Augustine going back and recasting a real event, I suspect, but casting it and, and pre uh, presenting it in such a way as that it has all these very clear analogies with uh, the Garden of Eden and the fall. In fact, he calls it a fall, which I think is very interesting. Uh, but he sees, and what you see in Augustine is that the fall happens in you and me and everybody. What happened in the Garden of Eden happens again and again and again and again. And I think Augustine's trying to tell us that. He made this statement after he was converted. Uh, well, he, of course, he would have recognized a new nature. But, uh, yeah, but I do think he did understand that it's still the residual effects are still there and there is still an ugliness to us. I think Augustine did understand that. Yeah, there, there, certainly there is. Conversion means something. I mean, it would be rather odd if God saves somebody and it makes no difference whatsoever, right? So conversion is real. There are changes. You now have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that moves and shapes 
your motives and the way you think about things and, and your regular regret what you have when you do something wrong. Uh, but I still, Romans 7 is very powerful to me where Paul struggles. And I take that to be Paul referring to his life as a Christian, struggling with himself to do what is right. And uh, so, so I would say with Luther, you know, that we're at the same time a sinner and, and yet saved. We still struggle with that old nature. And I think, you know, I, I look in my own life, I don't have to look at somebody else's to know that, that that's the case. There is still struggle. But there, there's a sense, I think there's a sense of victory, a sense, a sense that, that there will be progress, that there is a new nature, there's hope. You do things that are pleasing to the Lord. I think, I think conversion is real, and it would be a terrible, terrible thing to suggest that it's not real. So, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a good reason for, for stressing the sin nature. And I think one of the reasons that Reformed people want to put a lot of emphasis on that is because, one, it, it really is a pivotal point in a theological system. You take that out, and the whole system falls. So it is very, very crucial. And the other reason I think we stress that, I know for me, is that I think modern evangelicalism, broadly speaking, doesn't understand very well that fundamental question. And you know, if I'm thinking about people who are going to go out and minister in churches, I want to encourage them to understand that. I want that to be a part of their message, because I think it's a, a very important biblical element in any system that you go out and teach your people. Uh, and I think it's an area that is uh, not often addressed, and certainly when it is addressed, not addressed very well. So perhaps there is, uh, I hesitate to say an overemphasis, because I, I think it's emphasized a lot, and it, and it should be. Because uh, I, I, think, I think we live in a world where you know, we all have a spark of divinity in us, that kind of thing where we're, you know, this, this idea that you can just do it and uh, that you have ability and, and things. And I, I, I think that's a, a very common notion that, that most people have as well as most Christians. And that one remedy toward that is to have a strong doctrine of sin. So, anyway... At 17, Augustine went to Carthage. There to study rhetoric. And one of the first things he did is to acquire a mistress with whom he lived for 13 years and with whom he had a son, a Diodatus. There's a spelling, a D-E... O-D-A-T-U-S. Adeodatus. A-D-E-O-D-A-T-U-S. For 13 years, that's right. Augustine wrote, There sang around me in my ears a cauldron of unholy loves. I was not yet in love, but I loved the idea of love. Uh, Augustine had, as a young person, 
uh, a very serious problem with sexual sins. Uh, T.S. Eliot, in his poem, The Wasteland, refers to Augustine. This short little phrase, he says, To Carthage then I came, burning, burning, burning. Burning with sexual desire. Uh, Augustine... <laughs> Augustine specifically recalls about himself at the age of 16. He said, The frenzy gripped me and I surrendered myself entirely to lust. He also says of himself that he was floundering in the broiling sea of fornication. Uh, It seems that this had become very, very much an obsession with him. Uh, it seems, at least as he characterizes his problem, not just the average kind of stuff, but a really very, very obsessive uh, desire uh, for uh, satisfaction. Uh, and it's this problem in particular I think there were there's some intellectual problems, but this this overwhelming obsession for sex for sex uh, was that one of the things maybe the main thing that was his obstacle in becoming a Christian. There was a point in his life. And I'll say this again, but a point in his life where he he intellectually believed that Christianity was true. But he did not want to give up his lifestyle. In fact, he prays that prayer that I, that I, I think is somewhat amusing, but, but sad too. He said he prayed to God. Here he is, a person who is convinced intellectually that Christianity is true. So he prays to God. He says, Dear God, give me chastity, but not yet. And I think that tension... Uh, it, it is it is funny, but it's also very very serious. It's a man who is wrestling with with a very serious obsession, and, I, and I, it really makes me think uh, about the nature of sin itself. Sin has a way of grabbing hold and not letting go, and it becomes obsession. I guess is is a good word, a habit pattern, a lifestyle. And there's a real moral lesson in all of this for all of us is don't get started. When you see sin, flee it. Because if you engage it, 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 it I think it's a lot like you know, addiction. You know, you take a little bit of horse, a little bit of smack, a little bit of heroin, and it feels great. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that heroin is, is a wonderful feeling. And it, and it attracts you, sin does like that. It feels good. You do it again and again, and next thing you know, you can't get out of its grasp. It's got a hold of you, and you have to do it. I think that's sort of the thing that I see with, with Augustine here, with, with his sexuality problem. Anyway. So much. I probably shouldn't harp on that too much. But anyway. Yes. I wasn't particularly 
but you're right to say that it did. Uh, I wrote an article once. In fact, this is just a little section from it. And the title of it was, Augustine, Profligate Turned Celibate. Uh, he did believe and did become celibate. Uh, and, and I think it's very fair to say that he had an extraordinarily powerful influence on the development of celibacy in the church. I think there's little question about that. So his own personal struggles had a theological implication that carried on throughout the ages. Also at Carthage, besides discovering the opposite sex, he discovered philosophy. And there, at 19, he read a book from Cicero called Hortensius. Hortensius is a book that is lost. We no longer have any copies of it, so we don't know exactly what it says. H-O-R-T-E-N-S-I-U-S. And... But we know that, that he was very much enamored with Cicero and his, his eloquence. And as a result of reading Cicero, Augustine resolved to make his life's goal to pursue truth wherever he found it. So I think even here we have a person who is a serious-minded person. The first attempt at acquiring the truth came in his contact with Manichaeanism. With Manichaeanism. And as you perhaps know, perhaps not, Manichaeanism, one of the basic ideas of Manichaeanism is this radical dualism. Good and evil. And uh, this system seemed to help him uh, understand the problem of evil a little bit. It sort of got him off the hook because you have these two powers up there. And so it's really not his fault that he does wicked things, but it's the fault of that power up there, evil, that's gained hold. In 373, the 20-year-old Augustine embarked on a career as a teacher of rhetoric. He taught in a number of places, Tagasta, his hometown, in Carthage, and in Rome. By the time he left Carthage, having acquired his degree, Augustine finds himself a little bit disenchanted with Manichaeanism. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what happened. Probably Maybe I did. <laughs> Rome. He left Carthage and he went to Rome. And as he left Carthage, he was becoming increasingly uh, disenchanted with Manichaeanism. Two things in particular seem to have to have uh, increased his doubts about Manichaeanism as a valid system. The first was the death of a close friend. 
and somehow Manichaeanism just didn't really satisfy or soothe uh, Augustine's heart at the loss of a dear friend. It didn't minister to him. And the other factor that contributed to his disenchantment with Manichaeanism was his encounter with a leading Manichaean by the name of Faustus. Faustus had come uh, to Rome and uh, Augustine had asked him a number of questions, asked for explanations. And Augustine walked away thinking, this guy doesn't really have the answers. And so he is disenchanted with with, uh, the Manichaeans. So then in Rome, he starts... He's a lost soul. He's looking for answers. So he gets involved with another group called the Academics. A terrible group, by the way. Academics, which is another word for skeptics. And these were the folks who were saying truth can never be known. That's got to be a very optimistic philosophical view. At any rate... Uh, he didn't last all that long as as a, a skeptic. And also at Rome, he encounters Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism. And particularly the uh, teaching of Plotinus, P-L-O-T-I-N-U-S, the founder of Neoplatonism. And the key thing to note is, just picture this, you have Augustine a guy who is pursuing truth. And he he's looks first at Manichaeanism. He's, he thinks perhaps it's there. Finds out it's not quite what he thought it was, so he goes to something else, and it's not there. And now he's going to Neoplatonism. And the important thing about Neoplatonism for Augustine is, is that this is a major turning point in his life. Yeah, a little bit. Hang on on that one. Prior to Platonism, his discovery of Neoplatonism, Augustine had trouble understanding the Christian God. He couldn't understand how God could be spiritual. He just, how God could be a spirit. He could not imagine that God didn't have some sort of physicality. And it was only by reading Plotinus, the Neoplatonists, that he was persuaded that God could indeed be spiritual, that God existed beyond space and time. So what happened, the, the important thing about the Plotinus and the Neoplatonism is that he begins to understand for the first time, he begins persuaded that God is a spirit. And that... Uh, that point marks a crucial uh, step along the way to his coming and believing in Christianity. Another problem that, that was satisfying to him in Neoplatonism was its accounting of the origin of evil. What he discovered from Plotinus is that evil was not a substance, as the Manichaeans had said, 
But that evil was really a defect. It was a pollution. That evil didn't have a separate existence. Rather, evil was an imperfection of the good. A corruption of goodness. And that seemed to really satisfy him. That evil did not have any separate existence. That evil was, in fact, a corruption of goodness. The other thing that needs to be appreciated about Neoplatonism is, particularly as developed by, by Plotinus, is that Plotinus does not throw out Christianity. In fact, he encourages people to read the Old Testament and the New Testament. And since Augustine wanted to be a good Neoplatonist, he for the first time began to read the Bible. And so it's often said, and I'm sure it's true, that the Neoplatonism that he encountered at Rome prepared the way for his eventual embracing of Christianity. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.